Three weeks ago from yesterday, the Jewish people celebrated Yom Kippur. Every fall in September, early October, this day comes up on the calendar, and most Christians give it very little thought. What is so significant about Yom Kippur? Why have the Jews been celebrating this holiday, this holy day, for almost 3,500 years now? Why does the world at large even care? Why do we as Christians who come to the worship of the Lord in the study of the Bible, even this morning, care? I intend to make it clear to you today why we care and why the world should care. We will see from Leviticus chapter 16 why this is so very important and how this day points to the most important and central event and truth in the history of the world. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus, who while traveling with two of his followers on the road to the town of Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Yes, in Leviticus 16 and in the interpretation of these words from the New Testament, and in particular the book of Hebrews, we will see why these words of Moses and the prophets are words that are spoken concerning Jesus Christ, about his suffering, about his glorious resurrection, and his exaltation. For the religious Jew today, Yom Kippur and the days immediately before is a time of serious introspection, a time for Jews to consider the sins of the previous year and repent. Yom Kippur is the most solemn and important holiday of the Jewish year. Many modern Jews who do not observe any other Jewish custom will refrain from work, fast, and attend services in the synagogue on this day. The name Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur means Day of Atonement. In the words of a Jewish website, it is a day set aside to, quote, afflict the soul, to atone for the sins of the past year. The modern Jews see this day as essentially their last appeal, their last chance to change the gut judgment of God against them, their last day to demonstrate their repentance and make amends for the sins of the past 12 months. It is customary to wear white on this holiday, which symbolizes purity and calls to mind the promise of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Before we look this morning specifically at Leviticus 16, join me in asking for the Lord's blessing on our time in God's Word together. Heavenly Father, still and quiet our hearts before you. May we be attentive to your word to us this day. Help us to see Christ in the shadows of your Old Testament, of Moses and your prophets. May we rejoice in the redemption that is ours. May those who are suffering take comfort this day. 
May you be a shelter in the midst of the storm for us. We praise you, Lord, that our salvation is secured by you, by our great high priest, by the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Well, Leviticus, where we'll be this morning, is the third book of our Bible. Genesis is the first book. In Genesis, God created the world, including Adam and Eve, and He pronounced it all very good at the end of Genesis chapter 1. Yet Adam and Eve sinned against God in Genesis 3, and that was followed by God's judgment on sinful man. That judgment continued through a worldwide flood. And then more judgment came upon mankind at the Tower of Babel. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 12, humankind is in a seemingly hopeless situation as sinful and lost and separated from a holy God. Yet God, being faithful to the promise that he hinted at in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, calls a man, Abraham. And he promises this one man a land, a holy land, a place of rest. He promises him a seed, many descendants, as many as the sand of the seashore. And he promises to him blessing. He promises to him that through Abraham, through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, by the time we get to the end of the book of Genesis, the descendants of Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, are preserved from famine by going to Egypt where they grow to be a nation, the people of Israel. It is in the second book of the Bible, in Exodus, that we are told that Israel fell into slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Then God heard the cry of His people to be saved from slavery. God called Moses from the burning bush, and God delivered His people from Egypt through the Passover by the applying of blood to the doorposts through the Exodus, by traveling through the, dead, through the Red Sea and then drowning Pharaoh's army. Yet in mercy, God provides for them a law. A law that represents the character of God so that they might be God's representative before others. The people of Israel agreed to the Ten Commandments, to God's law. Yet God in His grace made provision for them in anticipation of the sin that he knew they would commit. His charge to them was to be holy as God in holy, yet they rebelled against him. But in his mercy, he prescribed sacrifices for them to offer every day, morning and evening they were to offer them, in order to make it possible for a sinful people to have a relationship with a holy and just God. These are described in the closing chapters of Exodus and in the first 15 chapters of the third book of the Bible, Leviticus. Yet these sacrifices are not enough in themselves. Not enough to cover all of their sin. Not enough to restore their relationship with a holy God. So now in Leviticus 16, he brings them to a day. The most important day for them to this point in their history as a people. It is the day of atonement. A day when God, in His grace and in His mercy, will again make a way for a sinful people to dwell with a holy God. 
On this day, the high priest of Israel would enter the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, of this, this tent, the place where God will meet with his people. Into the Holy of Holies, where the high priest and only the high priest could enter once a year to secure the abiding presence of God for one more year. The high priest would enter. And if done perfectly, the people would be assured of God's presence for one more year. If done improperly and unfaithfully, they would not have such assurance. God may withdraw his presence at any time. So now let's move on to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 1. Point number one in my message today is a sinless and perfect high priest is required. Verses 1 through 6. A perfect and sinless mediator is required. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell you, Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Well, apparently just the day before, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, had died. They had polluted the tabernacle by offering unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord in Leviticus 10. Not an offering in line with how God had commanded. They had come to present an offering in a way that God had not prescribed. In a way of their own making. And it is implied that while making this unauthorized fire or strange fire, it is implied that they at least made an attempt to enter the Holy of Holies, if not actually enter it, and it had cost them their lives. Because a holy God does not just allow anyone to approach Him any way they want. Sin cannot be in His presence. You must come to Him in His way not your way. So now Moses is told to speak to Aaron in verse 2. He tells him not to come inside the veil. Do not go into the Holy of Holies, referred to in this chapter as the holy place. Entering this sacred chamber was not to be a normal occurrence. It was not allowed and the danger is real. If Aaron enters the Holy of Holies in an unauthorized way, he too is faithing death, just like his sons did. Well, this inner room was inside the veil, where the Ark of the Covenant, which is a golden treasure chest-sized box containing the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets inscribed by the hand of God, and on top of the Ark was a mercy seat or atonement cover, a lid... And on either end of the mercy seat were two angelic creatures called cherubim. It was above this mercy seat and between the two cherubim that God's presence would come. This is a type or a shadow on earth of the very throne room of God. God's throne room come down to earth. The inner room, this holy of holies, 
is the place on earth where God will dwell in the midst of his people as they are encamped all around this tent or this tabernacle. No one was to even enter this inner chamber, this Holy of Holies, except for once a year the high priest could come inside the veil, but only after much preparation and only on the Day of Atonement, only on Yom Kippur. Verse 3 of Leviticus 16. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. Now, these garments that Aaron is to put on on the Day of Atonement are not the normal priestly garments. They're not even the high priestly garments. These are garments designed just for this day. And they are humble. They are simple. They are not ornate and decorative like the typical priestly garments. He is to come in to the Holy of Holies as a humble sinner representing the people of Israel. Verse 5, And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Notice, to prevent his death, Aaron is to bring a bull for a sin offering to cover his personal sin and a ram for a burnt offering to cover the sins of the people. We'll come back to those goats in just a moment. Notice Aaron also needed to bathe to cleanse himself from impurity. In contrast to Aaron, Jesus, as our only high priest, did not need to offer a personal sacrifice. For he is holy, perfect, and sinless. Jesus possessed a righteousness unlike the high priest of Israel. The author of Hebrews, referring to Jesus in chapter 7, says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, referring to Christ, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, in their sin as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Appoints Christ who is perfect forever. Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices for his own sin. He is a sinless and perfect high priest, and we need a holy, sinless, perfect high priest. Point number two. Two goats that satisfy wrath and take away guilt. Verses 7 to 10. We need a substitute. We need one that takes away guilt and satisfies God's wrath. Verse 7. 
Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness of Azazel. Jump down to verse 21 of Leviticus 16. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The two goats and their different destinies are presented here. One goat would be the sacrifice. The other would be set free. Well, what or who is Azazel? I believe the blessed explanation is this word is a combination of the Hebrew as, which can mean goat, and the last part, azel, from a word that means go away. Therefore, it's simply the designation for a goat that is taken away, or the escape goat, or we carry that expression over into the English language as scapegoat. That's where the word scapegoat comes from. It comes from Leviticus 16. One that is made a scapegoat is the one that bears the blame for others. It's the one who suffers in the place of other people. That's a scapegoat. And in verse 21, when Aaron lays both his hands on the head of the live goat and confesses the sins of the people, he is putting the people's sins, he is putting their sins on the goat who then bears them away into the wilderness. The high priest is transferring the sins of the people onto this scapegoat and sending it away. This picture is the carrying away of sin, the total removal of sin, which would be accomplished for us in Christ. It points to that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He, Jesus Himself, bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He, God the Father, made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, the scapegoat reminds us of Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Jesus 
has become our scapegoat. He takes our sins away. We also see the imagery of two big theological words here. We see propitiation and expiation here. We see propitiation in the sacrifice of the goat of the sin offering. It is a sacrifice, yes, a substitute that satisfies God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. It means to satisfy God's wrath or to appease God's wrath. We see expiation in the placing of sin on the head of the scapegoat and setting it free. It is the substitute that takes guilt away. That's what expiation means, to take guilt away. Propitiation is also seen in the sprinkling of the blood in the atonement cover, which we will talk about next. The mercy seat, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, when it is sprinkled with blood, that is picturing the satisfying of the wrath of God. And to satisfy the wrath of God, blood or death is necessary. These goats are pointing to Christ. They are shadows of the reality of Christ's righteous life, death, and resurrection that will satisfy the wrath of God and to take away our guilt before Him. They are pointing to the need for a substitute and the two aspects of that substitution that are provided in Jesus Christ. Point number three of my message. The blood of the substitute sacrifice covers sin. Verses 14 to 19. Now we come to the most important aspect of the Day of Atonement. The high priest enters into the Holy of Holies and applies the blood of the bull and the goat to the mercy seat for the sins of the people. Verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is, for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. You see, once inside the Holy of Holies, this inner chamber, he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat to remove Israel's sin. It's the most solemn act of worship in all the sacrifices and ceremonies of Israel. 
the blood sprinkled before God's throne on the lid of God's throne symbolizes the substitutionary atonement for sin that God graciously provides. When God above His throne looks at sin because of man's transgression of the law, God sees the blood. He sees the atonement. The blood on the atonement cover. The very next chapter speaks to this. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. Look over there if we will. You will find that the blood is required to make atonement for sin. Blood represents death. The penalty for sin is death. Separation from God for all eternity. And God is telling us that a blood sacrifice is necessary. Verse 29. And it shall be a statute for you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Jump down to verse 34. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. The point? The blood of a substitute sacrifice is required to cover sin. The blood of a substitute sacrifice is required to cover sin. Why should we care? Why is this so very important for us to understand? Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 9 where we had our scripture reading this morning. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Hebrews today. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 gives us a good place to start as the author points out the connection of the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. For was, was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own? For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, Hebrews tells us this tabernacle on earth we read about in Leviticus 16 is a a copy of the true temple in heaven. But in the true temple of heaven, a great high priest enters into the presence of God. Yes, our high priest, Jesus Christ, entered that heavenly temple. He did not enter a copy here on earth. And he offered a sacrifice, not of animals, but of himself. And he offered his sacrifice once, not daily, not morning and evening, not once a year, 
but once for all time. Keep in mind, the author of Hebrews is commenting here under the inspiration of God on the events of Leviticus. Just as the Old Testament sacrifices cleansed Israel by pointing to the true sacrifice of Christ to come, so does the atonement of Christ cleanse us from sin. And His work on the cross on our behalf doesn't just offer the possibility of cleansing from sin, but it actually cleanses us from sin. The work of Christ does not just make the possibility of atonement for sin for His people possible. Rather, it provides a real, actual atonement for your sin, for your sin and my sin as those who believe in Jesus Christ who are His people. Christ's sacrifice satisfies the wrath of God and takes away our guilt for sin. This is why we can do nothing to earn our salvation. Everything has been absolutely and completely done by Jesus in His life, death, and resurrection. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Go down with me to verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice two things. First, in verse 12, Jesus sat down. He sat down in the heavenly temple at the right hand of God. Aaron didn't sit down. The high priest of Israel had no place to sit down. As a matter of fact, he didn't want to spend too long in there. Because he was in the presence of God. He had duties to perform. He got those duties done and he got out. He didn't linger. But Jesus is waiting there today at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. His sacrifice was a once-for-all-time sacrifice. The second thing I want you to notice is verse 14. It says that by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Who are those that are being sanctified? Well, if you've placed your faith in Christ as Savior, it's you. Now that you've been saved, 
you are growing in Christ's likeness. You are being sanctified. And Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are positionally perfect before God. You can do nothing to change that. For good or bad. You are secure in Christ. Notice verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. You did not come to Omaha Bible Church this morning. You should not be going to church on Sunday morning because you can find there an offering for sin. The offering for sin has already been made. It is done. It is completed. It is finished in Christ. There's not another one. There's no bonus offering you can bring to the altar. It is the sacrifice of Christ that the sacrifices of the Day of Atonement are fulfilled, that Yom Kippur are fulfilled in Christ. Well, what happened at the moment of Christ's death? What happened at the temple in Jerusalem, at the entrance to the Holy of Holies, to the veil, to the curtain that leads into this place where the high priest was to go on the Day of Atonement? What happened on that day? Matthew 27 Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The curtain, the veil into the Holy of Holies in the great temple of Jerusalem in Jerusalem was torn, was ripped in two symbolizing that the way into the presence of God was now open. And a few years later, just 37 years later, the temple itself in Jerusalem was burned to the ground and totally destroyed. You see, the new age has dawned. The Messiah, the Christ, has come. What was foreshadowed in Leviticus 16, what the law was whispering about, about the One that was coming, about the great High Priest who would open the way to the presence of God and would do so by the blood of a substitute sacrifice has come true in the fullness of of time. In light of this, how should we live? How should we as Christians who are followers of Christ live? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. First of all, notice, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. How do you suppose Aaron felt that first day of atonement? Let's see. His sons had dabbled with the presence of God, and what had happened to them? They're smoked, right? They're dead. They're judged. But Aaron's called to go in. Do you think there was a bit of fear and trepidation on Aaron's part? I don't think Aaron went in boldly and confidently. But we can. We can. And the author of Hebrews gives us Three different ways to think about how we apply this truth in our life. The first way is in verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us draw near to God. In our troubles, in our trials, in our struggles, in the bad circumstances of life, we are called to draw near to God. To go to Him. To take shelter in Him. To rest in Him. Why can we do that? Because of what verse 23 tells us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For He who promised is faithful. He is a faithful God. He will keep His promises. So when you're ill, when you're sick, when your relationships are falling apart, where can you run to? Where can you go? You can go to Christ. You can go to the God who is faithful to keep His promises. We don't have to waver. We can draw near. So God calls us to come to Him, to embrace Him, to cling to Him. He takes us to His bosom. He loves us and cares for us. And then the third exhortation, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another 
and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And let's do that while we are gathered together as his people, as we are gathered as his church. This is where God works. He works in the body of Christ. It's not an accident that the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ. We are in Him and in Him as corporately together as a group, as a community, as a people of God. We are to grow together in Christ's likeness and in so doing, stir one another up to love and good works. We are to be dedicated to that. Evidently, they even had Lone Ranger Christians in the days of the, Old, of the New Testament times. He has to warn them. Don't be a Lone Ranger Christian. Don't be a by-yourself Christian. You need other Christians in your life because God will work through us together to love one another, to care for one another. Yes, to disagree at times. Goodness knows we disagree over things. But what are we united in? We are united in Jesus Christ, are we not? Is there anything more important than that? Nothing. Nothing is more important than that. Not our petty desires and our wishes and the things that get under our skin. The gospel is bigger than all of that. Christ is bigger than that. He is calling us here in the book of Hebrews that in light of the sacrifice of Christ, cling to that truth. Cling to that truth. I want you to notice one more thing. The Jews today, when they celebrate Yom Kippur, They don't have a temple. They don't have a high priest. They go to their individual synagogues and they pray. But there is no blood. There is no atonement for sin. There hasn't been for almost 2,000 years now. There is a solution for them, just like there is a solution for us, for you. If you are here today and are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I exhort you, I encourage you to consider how do you have a relationship with a holy God? For as biblical Christians, the Bible tells us we are sinners. And it is only through the blood of Christ that that relationship can be restored. And we can be called His child. And in doing so, we can draw near to Him. We can hold fast to Him. As we wait for the day, notice Hebrews 25 ends with the exhortation of the day. 
the return of Jesus Christ in glory for His people to gather us together and take us to the place where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more illness. As we understand the Day of Atonement, and as we read in our yearly Bible readings these passages from the Old Testament, our minds should be taken to the cross. To Christ. For that is what they are pointing to. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, in kindness and love, You have given us a great high priest. You have given us Jesus Christ. He cleanses us from sin. He has perfected us in His sacrifice for us. Through Your Spirit, Father, give us the knowledge and wisdom that is ours in Christ, that we might grow into Christ-likeness. We praise You for Christ's priestly intercession for us at Your right hand even this moment. Stir up in us, Lord, a desire to encourage one another, to love one another, as we wait in eager anticipation for the return of our Savior for His people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.